And that brings me to my very first question. Where was Noah's brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, his cousins? Where was his mama? And surely he had some friends. Where were they? Now that's a good question in the days of Noah, because there were only eight people that made it into and out of the ark. Pastor Martin explains in Genesis chapter 8, verses 14 through 18, with a sermon title, Noah, one of eight. Now for the last couple of weeks, we've been, we've been talking about Noah, and one of the things we established was Noah was a preacher of righteousness. But he was also a proclaimer or a herald that there, a great tragedy was coming, that a flood was going to take place. But here's the interesting thing about that. His message seemed to fall mostly on deaf ears. He was likely mocked and potentially had committed scoffers who would challenge him or, 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 or challenging his warning of what God had declared what would be taking place. And even as time went on, it's very likely there were those who said, hey, man, you've been saying that same thing all this time, but still, no flood. But Noah likely was one that was willing to compel anyone that he encountered, hey, come on in with me, come in and join in with what I'm doing and join me in the ark because the flood is coming. Yet again, we find that as we list, as we re just read the list of those who came out of the ark, we find that it seems that his message had fallen on deaf ears. Only, unfortunately, his message seemed to only reach his three sons, his, their wives, and his wife. Thus, the scripture says that Noah was one of eight. Because scripture speaks of a falling away in our day, it's important for us to then consider a probing question. As we consider the fact that only eight went in and only eight came out. So the probing question that, st that starts us out today is, were there others who started out with Noah but did not remain? We will explore this question and others as we walk through our message today. Now, here's something that I want to do. I want to go back and take a look at Noah because He's a unique man, and interesting as you start to look at his history and look at the text and then begin to think through from your own personal perspective, what would that be like if God were to call you and ask you to do something so unusual but yet so profound? Because we talked about this in, the, in previous weeks that Noah obeyed God. We also understand that the Bible describes him as one who walked with God. 
We understand him to be a preacher. We don't know much about his history prior to. We do know something too about his, his birth because when he was born, his father prophesied over him that he would actually bring relief to them, suggesting that he would be unique or something different about him. We understand that he was 600 years old when the flood took place. We also understand that he lived another 350 years after the flood. But unlike those before him, he only had the three sons. In each of the generations before, you'll see that they'll say that they had a certain, they had one child and then they'll list that person. And then they say, and they had sons and daughters. But in Noah's case, he only had the three sons. Now, there's something important to note because as we talked about Noah, we know that he had an immediate family. And we don't know a whole lot about, the Bible doesn't record a lot about his wife and his daughter-in-laws other than the fact that we know that they joined in believing what Noah was preaching. And they joined him and his sons and their husbands, uh, his sons, their husbands, and his wife joins him in the ark. There's a few things we can then draw from his sons. Uh, we do know that he had the three sons, uh, and we understand that his oldest son would have been about 100 years old when the flood took place. And that son would be Japheth. Japheth would have been, would have been the oldest son because we, we know uh, that it, when you look over in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 10, you find out that Shem had a son two years after the flood, and Shem was 100 years, two years after the flood. But we know that Noah had, a, had his first child 100 years before. We also know that it couldn't have been Ham because Ham is described as the youngest son in Genesis 9, 24. So we know that he had three sons, his oldest son, Japheth. We know that they all joined in with their father and that sometime in their journey as they begin to mature, God began to use them to help their father. But now we then turn our attention to something I don't think all of us take time to consider. Noah had an extended family. He had an extended family. And we're only going to jump back three generations to his great-grandfather, Enoch. Enoch was Noah's great-grandfather. What we know about Enoch was that Enoch uh, lived 365 years. We know that he begot Methuselah. We know Methuselah, you heard that name before. Somebody said, you old as Methuselah. They, it's not a compliment. They're trying to say something. <laughs> Methuselah was the oldest living man. We understand he lived the longest of anyone. He had Methuselah. But then the Bible says that Enoch, after having Methuselah, walked with the Lord. So now we just discovered that Noah walked with the Lord. His great-grandfather also walked with the Lord. But here's something to understand. Noah never met his great-grandfather because Enoch died 69 years before Noah was born. So we've got Enoch who had a legacy of walking with God two generations before Noah was born. 
Here's something else we know about him. He was a great man of faith. Enoch was a great man of faith because he's listed in Hebrews 11 as being one of those great men of faith. When we think about the Faith Hall of Fame, Hebrews chapter 11, we understand that Enoch is listed there as one being, as being a man of great faith. But it also, here's something to note. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 22, it says that Enoch had sons and daughters, which, mean Noah, which means that Noah had some great aunts and uncles. But here's something that is important for us to understand. Noah's great-grandfather was a significant man because Enoch actually prophesied about Jesus. We find in Jude, verses 14 and 15, that Enoch actually prophesied these words. He says, the Lord is going to come with 10,000s of his saints. That's verse 14. And then in verse 15, he says, and he will execute judgment on all to convict all ungodliness. Enoch prophesied about Jesus before the flood. Now, it's important to understand that Enoch also, there is actually a book of Enoch. The book of Enoch, which is actually Jude, when Judas, Judas is, is, is quoting or he's quoting this prophecy from the book of Enoch. Now, the book of Enoch is a, uh, it's a Jewish historic religion, religious text that is considered, but by the time we get to the fourth century, it was consulted. So Jude is consulting this, this text, and he includes it in our canon, our scripture. God includes it in our scripture. However, the book of Enoch by the fourth century was no longer considered to be a part of the church's canon, the, the closed canon, the scriptures, the Bible that we have. However, there are at least two other Orthodox Christian groups that still use the book of Enoch as a part of their canonical scripture. So it's important to see here that Enoch, Noah's great-grandfather, walked with the Lord, and he walked in such a way that it didn't, he didn't die because he got old. The Bible said by the time he had lived 365 years, God just took him. So we see Noah has, we've established that he has some great uncles and aunts, and they likely could have possibly passed on before Noah comes along. But we also, we recognize that Noah's grandfather, Methuselah, would have likely known because they would have been, this would have been his grandfather, and he would have had some time, he would have been knowledgeable about his grandfather, Enoch. Now, you say, well, where was Methuselah? He lived so long. Methuselah actually died the year of the flood. When you do the calculation, you find that he died the same year that the flood 
took place. I'm going somewhere, you may find like, say, Pastor, where are you going? This is, this is good information, but where are we heading here? I mean, we're talking about Noah and the days of Noah because ultimately we have this, 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 the reality that when we look at the text, sometimes we don't think about the fact that there are other people involved in Noah's life, just like there are other people involved in your life. Some of us here today, we didn't have a legacy of Christianity in our lives. There are some here that their grandmother wasn't a praying mother. She was a cussing one. Drinking and, and will cuss you out and send you outside to play and call you names that your mama didn't give you. Some of us had some grandfathers that introduced us to sin. So it's important to understand that Noah had other people in his life just like we do. He didn't exist in a vacuum with just him, his three sons, and their wives and his wife. So we know that it goes on to say that Methuselah had, in, in Genesis 5 and 26, that he had sons and daughters, which means Noah had some aunts and uncles. Okay, let's move on because now we come closer to Lamech, Noah's father. Now, Noah's father died five years before the flood. So, Methuselah could have introduced Noah to the understanding he had of his father because he was alive up until the flood took place. But Noah's father died five years prior to the flood. But here's a, here again, in verse 30 of chapter 5, it says that Lamech had sons and daughters, which means now Noah has some brothers and sisters. And then we see he would have some cousins, some auntie nims, some uncle names, <laughs> and all of that brings us, because what I'm going to do today, I'm not going to do what I normally do. I'll give you three points and go through. I'm going to frame the sermon around questions. And that brings me to my very first question. Where was Noah's brothers and sisters aunts and uncles, his cousins? Where was his mama? And surely he had some friends. Where were they? Because when we read the text, we see that Noah was one of eight. And so here's why this is all important, because it's important to understand and frame this for you, because the, term, the, 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 the title of this sermon series is as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the last days. So you all understand that the songwriter said, I'll go if I have to go by myself. And then the songwriter goes on and says, if my mother don't go, if my father don't go, if my sister don't go, I'll go if I have to go by myself. So here's what I need you to understand. Noah understood that God spoke to me and I've got to go 
even if mama and them and cousin and them and auntie and them and granddaddy and them don't go, I've got to go. Because see, sometimes we find ourselves struggling trying to figure out how to balance out living for God and keeping folks around because of what they mean to us. And not that we're supposed to abandon because we're supposed to shine light in darkness. We're supposed to be there to be a witness to them. But the truth of the matter is, when Jesus said this, he says, but of that day and hour, this is Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 and 37, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only, verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. So if that is the premise that we're working from, we're looking back and we're understanding that context, contextually, as in the days of Noah, we ask the question, where were this extended family? But here's the key. When we start to understand the fact that Noah had an extended family, we see that his immediate family heard the message joined in. We also understand his great-grandfather was one who was a man of righteousness, who walked with God and, and laid down a legacy of walking with God. Again, now watch this. If Enoch walked with God, likely he would have shared with his family, with his sons and daughters. But when we find Noah going into the ark, he's not going in with these family members. He's going in with his sons, his daughter-in-laws, and he's going in with just his wife. Now, this is, this is important because if we think about the context of the sermon series, as in the days of Noah, Jesus set this forth. Jesus says this in the, in the midst of a sermon. When you go back and in your, in your personal time, we won't study this during this sermon series, but in your personal time, you can take a look at this. Uh, Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25 is one long sermon. One sermon is called the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus is actually answering three questions. So the, the, the sermon begins with the, with the disciples walking Jesus by the temple and they try to impress him. So they say, Jesus, they said, Lord, look at how beautiful this temple is. And Jesus shocks them by saying, yes, but not one stone will be left upon another. Now, they fell shot down, so then later on when they get by themselves, they said, Jesus, tell us, when would this be? The temple being destroyed. And what will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Those three questions. It's important for us to understand today that of those three questions, the first question has already been answered. The temple was destroyed A.D. 70, about 40 years after Jesus' death, roughly 40 years, about 37 years or so, A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed. So the first question has been answered. So then when we look at the text of that, the rest of the sermon, we understand that Jesus is answering for us today the other two, what will be the sign of your return and what will be the sign of the end of the age? 
It's important to, for us also to understand that as we look at, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be, one of the things that becomes evident as we look more carefully is that God was then long-suffering just like he is today. First Peter chapter number three. If you would grab, turn over there with me. We're not going to do a lot of turning, but turn there, please. First Peter chapter three. Because here Peter says something. He speaks about the days before the flood, and he says something about God that reveals God's character even as we know it today as it existed then. In the, in the 20th verse, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 says, For who formerly were disobedient when once the divine, there it is, the divine long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. He says that God's divine long-suffering was evident while Noah was building the ark. God was being long-suffering with the people, hearing the message of righteousness, and giving them an opportunity to hear and respond and be saved. Peter, in his next letter, deals with our time today. Turn over to 2 Peter, chapter <clears throat> number 3. Because he makes another declaration in 2 Peter, chapter 3, his second letter. He states this in verse number 9. He says, the Lord is not slack because he's talking about those that in the last days, there will be those that will mock and say, when is Jesus coming? We've been hearing about Jesus coming all of our lives. So in response to that, Peter says, just understand this, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some might count slackness, but he is long-suffering towards us. So now he's already declared that God was long-suffering before the flood, and now he's saying God is long-suffering now before judgment, the second judgment. Of the earth. Look here. But it's long suffering toward us, not willing. Here it is. Why has Jesus not come back yet? Because God is long suffering. It is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to. God is holding off, sending Jesus back, waiting for us to do the work of evangelists to get somebody saved until that last person comes into the kingdom. See, God is, he's not just waiting. He's waiting for us to get our work done. He's waiting for us to share the good news with the last person that will be in our ark. The ark of safety with Jesus. See, he's long-suffering while the ark was being, while the ark was being prepared. And Noah's preaching righteousness and giving opportunity for those to believe. But not all believed. As in the days of Noah, so shall it be. Not all will believe even today. So God is still long-suffering because of his great love that he has for mankind. 
given us every opportunity, even now, given us an opportunity to come, given someone sitting here, someone watching, an opportunity to stop contemplating whether or not Jesus is real and embrace him as Lord and as Savior. He's bringing up or raising up what he's already done to instill or stir faith in us to believe in what he's going to do. He was willing to save then. He's willing to save now. Now, there's something else that we must consider that is a, a theological subject that tends to get lost on most. It is a theological declaration in Scripture by the Apostle Paul that we call the great apostasy. The great apostasy. The definition of apostasy is to abandon or to renounce. So Paul actually introduces something about the last days in which he says that in the last days, there will be a great apostasy. And he describes it in two ways. One of the ways he describes it is that in the last days, there will be those who will depart from the faith. That's one. And then in another place, he describes it as those that are, there'll be a great falling away from faith. Now, as we go into this, I want to share something with you because many of us have been trying to understand the, the, this pandemic. And one of the things, all has not been revealed, but one thing that, has, that is clear, that what the pandemic has done, it has created a disconnect for so many from the fellowship of the body. We hear statistics uh, uh, of church, church, those who study church history and church statistics, they talk to us about the fact that many people will never come back and let's just understand this. Satan is a great deceiver. One of the things he's deceiving people into believing is that they are in a community because they like somebody or they follow someone. Do you understand one of the great, one of the numbers that's rising among us is depression? Because people are lonely. They, they got thousands of followers, but feel alone. Because man was not designed to just be, to know about men. He was designed to be in community with, with men. And here's the reality. God made us in the likeness of his image. And key, 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 key. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that is a community. God made us to exist in community with others. Because social media gives us this false sense of being apart. But then when our world crashes with our made-up world, then we understand we feel depressed and alone because I put what I want you to know about me. Okay, okay, okay. Just look at the profile. You got, you got, you got, you got that picture from 19. Nineteen ninety. Were you like? 
And then they see you in person like, hey, who are you? I'm Jessica. Oh, that's right. I couldn't tell because of the, um, you changed your, which, did you change your eyebrows or something? I, Because the understanding that we're getting, we're deceived into thinking that we can still be in community without being in community. So what has happened is, one thing that's happened with the pandemic is creating this sense that I can exist at a distance and still be a part. If you go back and look at how God established his church he always had his people in community. Okay, let's go all the way back. Adam and Eve had two sons. The first murdered because they, they left church mad. God has been bringing his people to church since the beginning. Remember, Cain and Abel came to worship God. God accepted Abel's and didn't accept Cain. And Cain came away mad and got so angry that he killed his brother. God has been gathering his people since the beginning. He didn't change his mind. He still is calling us together. Because here's what Satan knows. When he gets us separated, Gets you out there on the island by yourself. He can get in there and work, work your way. Here's something. I want to read this for you because I said this. Uh, Paul said this in 1 Timothy. Write this down. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. He says this. Now the Spirit expressly, he says, the, the Spirit is clear on this matter. Says that, that in the latter days, some will depart from the faith. Giving heed to deceiving spirits because they can still feel something. I still feel it. He says, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. That there are demons who have actually crafted whole doctrines that have been taught and retaught even in seminaries. To draw people away. Speaking lies, verse 2, hypocrisies, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. That they don't even understand that what they're preaching and teaching is from a demon. Okay, let's move on to the next one. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, because I'm running out of time, I'm almost done. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, he says this. Let no one deceive you that, it, that by, by no means or any means, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the falling away comes first. He says there's going to be a falling away before Jesus comes. There's going to be a falling away from the faith. But even in the midst of all of that, I hear the Lord declaring in Matthew chapter 24, Verses 12 and 13, he says, in the last days, that because the love, lawlessness was a, will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Verse 13, he says, but he, she, they who endure to the end will be saved. 
holding on. We talk about holding on to the bloodstained banner, holding on to my faith. He said, those who endure to the end will be saved. Now, that points us to our second question. Was there a great apostasy in Noah's day? Because if Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be, Paul says that there's going to be a great falling away before it takes place. Was there a great apostasy in Noah's day? Were there those who started out well and started well, but then got weary? Became weary in well-doing? Because Paul says, don't grow weary while doing good. Because in due season, you will reap if you do what? Not faint. The greatest challenge to us in the last days is not to faint. Because he said there will be a great falling away. Because in, in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, look what it says. It says, it says and do, he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness bringing in the flood on the world of ungodly. I want to say this today, and I, and I hope that it registers for you, and I would that you consider this and write this down because this is an important reality that we must understand. There are some who have already backslid in their heart and don't even know it. There are some who've already backslid in their heart and don't know it. I would invite you to Proverbs chapter 14. Turn to Proverbs 14. I want you to see this. Proverbs 14, we're going to look at verse 14. Here's what the word says. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. There are some that God cannot stir them to do anything and that they still continue to speak about how much they love him. They're not moved to any action. As we said a couple of weeks ago, that Noah, knowing that the judgment of God was coming, he was moved to action. Because here's what Peter says at a later time in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own ways, doing it their own way. Paul says that in the last days, there will be those who will have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Backslider in heart still has a form of godliness, but denies the power of the godliness that God has given us the opportunity to walk in righteousness. So we understand that some have potentially backslided in their heart, backslidden in their heart and don't even know it because they can still have a form. They still know, you, you know, just because you backslidden don't mean you forget all the things you know. You still quote scripture. Your mind didn't go. You still have knowledge. You can still say things. I attended yesterday a funeral of a loved one. While there, someone got up in the mic 
and declared how they hate coming to church. Hate coming to church. And that the deceased had forced them to come so they could attend the funeral. But then proceeded to begin to preach. It's talking about how when, when Moses went up on the mountain and how his countenance changed and how your countenance is supposed to change. I hate going to church. It's how they started. But begin to talk about Moses and how his countenance changed. And so your countenance should change if you've been with God. Form of godliness. Let's close with this. Jesus talks about something that's important for us to recognize. He speaks about in, in, the, in the, the great sermon on the mount in chapter seven, he speaks about something that we don't talk about a lot anymore. The narrow way. You used to hear people talking about the straight. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stay on the straight and narrow. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, verse 14. Here's what Jesus has to say. Matthew 13, Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there are who go in by it. He said that you're going to find a whole lot on, on that Broadway. A whole lot of people ain't trying to do what Jesus wants them to do. But he says, you enter by the narrow gate. Verse 14, he says, because narrow is the gate. Key, operative term, and difficult is the way. That means you got to give up some stuff. You can't just bring it all with you. Paul said, lay aside every weight that easily besets you. There's stuff that keeps us from truly serving God and pursuing him in righteousness that we still try to hold on to. Yeah. But he says, you're going to have to get rid of some things. You can't have to run the race lightly. Because narrow is the gate, difficult is the way, which leads to life. And he says, there are few who find it. This is Jesus talking. The one who was dying on the cross, the one who was giving himself as a sacrifice, says that there's a narrow way and it won't be broad. And it's going to have some challenges. Not challenges because he says, my, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He says, I'm not, I'm not weighing you down. I'm, I'm freeing you. See, when he frees us, whom the son says free, we're free. We're free to live for him. As he designed it. Enter by the narrow gate. Which leads us to the final question of the day. What are you building on? Because after Jesus makes this, he also talks about many will come to me in that day and I will declare I never knew them. He will declare, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, I will deal with that at some other time. But after saying all that. He says this in that same seventh chapter of Matthew. At the end of his sermon, he says this in verse 24 and 25. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine 
and does them. Not just hear them, not just a hearer of the word, but a doer. Here's these sayings of mine and does them. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Because remember, we talked about the falling away. He says, and the rain descended. When you build on solid foundation, the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it was founded on the solid rock. That wraps up another awesome word. If you're in need of prayer, counsel, or if we can assist in any way, please don't hesitate to ask. If you would like to join, contact us or receive these and other sermon notes, visit us at amitybc.org. Until next week, be blessed.